Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Abe Cisse. He's the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Tiburio Therapeutics. The company is developing a couple of drug candidates for rare neuroendocrine tumors. It raised $31 million in a Series A financing in January 2019 from NEA, Lundbeckford Ventures, Longitude Capital, and Alexandria Real Estate Equities. Abe is in his early 40s and has gotten to this point as a first-time CEO through a pretty unusual journey by biotech standards. He didn't go to medical school or get a PhD. He didn't really know what he wanted to do for a while after graduating from college. He learned about biotech, fixed his gaze on the amazing things happening around Kendall Square as a young business student, and then basically worked his tail off to get in the door as an intern at Genzyme. Abe thrived in a series of roles at that pioneering biotech company, and that experience propelled him to where he is today. Abe also happens to be African-American. His life experience, especially his youth, is quite different from most people who end up occupying the corner office at biotech companies. He's quite thoughtful and open in this conversation. I think Abe is an inspiring person, and I'm thankful that he was willing to come on the show and reflect a bit on how the industry can create more space for people from diverse backgrounds who don't always get the opportunity, but who do have something substantial to contribute if given a chance. Please join me and Abe Cisse on the long run. Abe Cisse, welcome to the long run. Thank you, Luke. Appreciate the time and uh, look forward to talking to you. So, Abe, really pleased to have you on. Uh, we got a lot to cover uh, with Turburio Therapeutics, interesting company that you're running there in Kendall Square. Uh, but I, as I often like to do on this show, I like to start from the beginning. So uh, can you tell me just a little bit about where where were you born and raised? So I was born in upstate New York uh, in a small city uh, by the name of Binghamton. Um, and I was pretty much upstate New York, born and raised uh, my entire early life um, and also went to undergrad in, in upstate New York as well. Binghamton, that's a state university town, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, now, I believe, the second largest state university in, in New York. Uh, so Binghamton University, uh, formerly known as uh, SUNY Binghamton. Uh, but yes, definitely a college town. Uh-huh. And what did your uh, parents do? So I uh, have a very interesting background. Um, so my parents, um, my mom grew up in a small farming town uh, outside of Binghamton, a town by the name of Green, New York. Uh, she grew up on a dairy farm. Uh, my mom is uh, Caucasian. Um, and uh, believe me, there's uh, not, not much diversity in the town that she came from. Uh, my father uh, actually uh, was a African uh, college student um, at Binghamton University. Well, at that time, it would be uh, SUNY Binghamton. Um, and my father uh, is from a small country um, on the west coast of Africa by the name of the Gambia. Um, and uh, they met when my father was uh, over uh, over uh, in the United States. Um, they are now divorced, uh, but my mom uh, served uh, was in uh, 
mental health uh, services um, over the course of her career for 35 years. And my father is actually a retired politician uh, from the Gambia. Wow. Okay. So they met in Binghamton. How did they meet? Um, you know, long story, you know, it was the 60s and the 70s. So, you know, I'm not sure uh, how much of the full story I've received, but uh, they met uh, just socially uh, through uh, through uh, academic setting. Okay, so you're, uh, you say your mom came from this small kind of rural area, dairy farm, not a lot of diversity. I mean, did, was this a... Um, a, a source of tension or difficulty for her and her family to um, to, to meet and and marry a uh, an African man. Yeah, I you know I would co- consider my my mother's family, so uh, my extended family on my mother's side, um, as well as you know her parents, my grandparents, who are, are, have have since passed. Um, some of the most progressive uh, people that um, I've ever met and, you know, feel very fortunate to have them be a part of my my life and and helping raise me. Uh, But there wasn't much tension, um, you know, from my mom's family. But as you can imagine, uh, where my mom was raised and and, and the town that she was in uh, being not very diverse at all um, and having some, you know, very uh, specific views on, on race, um, and, and just, you know, lack of progressive thinking at that point, um, where our country was, um, that there was a lot of tension, you know, my, my parents experienced, you know, uh, some very tough times, you know, both in, in terms of, you know, their relationship, um, the birth of me, their only son, um, and then also, you know, just trying to, 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 to establish a family and raise a family, um, at that time. Okay. So, uh, you say only son. So, uh, did you have it? You had no siblings, but did, um, who, who was part of this larger family? You said that you had, um, you know, grandparents were nearby. You yes. Came into contact with. Yep. So, uh, my grandparents, uh, were, were nearby and this is all on my mother's side of the family. So my grandparents uh, were nearby, had, had, had left, uh, their farming town at that point, uh, green New York. My, my grandfather had passed away, uh, but my grandmother was uh, very active in my life, you know, throughout, throughout my, my, my young childhood. And she passed away when roughly when I was about 10 years old. And then, a large extended family as well. Uh, my mom came from a family of four. Um, so uh, a couple aunts and uncle uh, that were very uh, influential and close, you know, in my life as well. Okay. Okay. So what kinds of things did your parents try to instill values wise? What was important to them? You know, I think I learned a few different things from my parents. You know, the first thing that I would say is, um, you know, the values that I picked up, you know, from my childhood and from my parents um, were not things and neither of them are people that are that are very direct um, in in telling what you what what you should believe. Um, It was much more of you know, really observing and and learning values uh, through my observations and, and their actions. You know, uh, as I said, my parents were divorced. So, you know, my mom is really the one that raised me. Um, And, you know, I I think a few things that I've learned from my mom, you know, throughout my life, you know, one is, you know, how to deal with adversity. 
Um, you know, my mom always um, showed an ability uh, to deal with uh, adversity in, in a very human way, um, in a very kind way, um, but in a way that, you know, also uh, really portrayed her beliefs. Uh, the second thing uh, that I would say that I picked up from both of my parents, uh, but mainly my mom, is, is an unbelievable work ethic. You know, as you can imagine, uh, being a single mother uh, uh, and trying to, you know, one, have a career, two, raise a son, um, you know, the ability uh, to, to work harder than anybody else is something that I picked up from my mom uh, very early. And I would say that, you know, one of the other, you know, key qualities that I that I picked up from my mom was, um, you know, an ab ability to persevere uh, through challenges. Uh, you know, I, I, I saw my mom um, and the rest of my family, you know, uh, really incur some very, you know, challenging times, you know, throughout my childhood um, and the ability to really persevere uh, through those challenging times. Um, and really learn uh, from what you're experiencing, um, I think, is something that has stuck with me, you know, throughout my childhood. But also, as I think about, you know, where I am today in my life and, you know, what I apply professionally, um, not only, you know, can you persevere through challenges, but the ability to really objectively learn about what you're going through and how that really can inform kind of where you're going next in your life. What were a couple of those challenges as a kid? Yeah. So, you know, there were several challenges, you know, um, my mom, uh, you know, as I said, was a single mother and, you know, uh, it, when, when I look at, you know, some, some things that she had to balance, um, and also, you know, a single mom that was raising a biracial son, um, at, at a time in the country when, you know, things weren't exactly um, as progressive as, as they are now. But ultimately, as we see what, what's happening in society right now, we still have a lot of work to do and there's a lot of progress that needs to be made in our society. Um, but, you know, I can think of, you know, very uh, specific examples of, you know, where my mom had to, you know, um, you know, deal uh, with racism, uh, deal uh, with with bigotry in her life. Um, and her ability uh, to, to persevere through that and always keep her head high, um, you know, really sticks with me and really stuck with me, you know, throughout my life. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned uh, was, you know, no, no matter how difficult the situation, you know, uh, if you have a fundamental belief in yourself um, and you hold, hold your core beliefs, um, you know, uh, consistent, um, ultimately, you know, you can get, you know, through very difficult situations. Now, were you as a kid shielded largely from these things or or, or were you acutely aware that, you know, uh, I'm uh, people perceive me differently uh, and, and uh, you, you know, that there's you know, some people are hostile? I was acutely aware um, of of the fact that, you know, my upbringing was different. And, you know, I think I have a very unique experience and story um, in, in, in how you define or how, you know, some, 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 some children may define, you know, them being different. Uh, but it is something, you know, I think that I was very, as, as you asked, very acutely aware you know, the first thing is that I did grow up, although my mom grew up in, you know, a, a very, you know, non-diverse setting uh, in the farming community that she grew up in, 
uh, the city that I grew up in was was very diverse. Um, however, you know, um, you know, the diversity, you know, was really defined uh, by uh, socioeconomic uh, settings. Uh, so, you know, my, my mom, you know, worked very hard. Uh, you know, we were lower middle class. Um, and the reality of the situ- situation was is that although my skin color uh, was associated with many other African-American kids, you know, in my neighborhood, in my school, that my background was very different. You know, my background was, you know, I, I, I had an African immigrant father uh, who wasn't exactly, you know, seen as, you know, uh, African-American per se, just because his, his background was very different. And ultimately, you know, I was being raised 100 uh, percent by a Caucasian mother. Um, so I was very acutely aware that I was different, you know, and my upbringing was different. And that was something that was, you know, uh, told to me in, 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 in very unkind ways um, at several points, you know, across across my childhood. Um, so it is something that, yes, I was um, acutely aware of. There's actually, you know, kind of a surface similarity here to uh, Barack Obama, which I suppose you've probably heard a few times. I, I have that heard that a few times. So maybe you can relate in some way that 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 sense of not exactly fitting in with either group. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, you know, I had some things that 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 brought me closer to 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 each group. You know, and, you know, in a very simplistic way, if you were to break it down into, you know, the the black world and the white world, uh, you know, I was I was uh, an athlete growing up um, and athletics were a major part of of my youth um, all the way through to college. Um, So, you know, there was an association um, being athletic and being, you know, an African-American kid growing up. Um, you know, there's an association there that, you know, allows you to fit in um, and have some familiarity with with um, other black kids that are growing up. And then so you know, what sports what sports did you play? So I, you know, I have a pretty interesting athletic background and everyone laughs when they hear this because, you know, Luke, we've met face to face before. And, you know, I'm six foot four. I'm a big guy. Um, and actually my first athletic experience growing up in upstate New York was hockey. Um, and I grew up from the age I was six to 13 playing hockey. Um, and it was one of my favorite sports ever. Um, as I grew, um, into, you know, the, the, (laughs) the lanky kid I ultimately was, uh, over the course of middle school and high school, I switched to basketball um, so I played in high school. I was a three sport athlete. I played football, basketball and lacrosse. Um, and then in at Ithaca College, I played both uh, football as well as basketball. OK, I want to come to Ithaca in a minute. But in terms of academics, uh, what kind of student were you coming up through middle school, high school? Yeah, you know, I I never really caught my stride academically until college. Um, you know, I, I, I struggled um, academically um, in middle school um, as well as a bit in high school. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons one of the things that I've learned, uh, you know, through my professional career um, is, you know, the type of learner I am. Um, you know, I was a focused student. You know, I worked very hard. 
Uh, but I didn't really understand what I was passionate about um, in, in both middle school as well as high school. Um, so, you know, I, I did well, you know, I got by, but by no means was I on the verge of being the valedictorian of my class. Um, and, you know, what, what, I, what, I, what I understood, though, um, in high school and going into college is um, where I am the best learner. Um, is when I'm really passionate about something. And, you know, I really didn't learn that until, you know, I uh, ultimately got got into college. Okay, so uh, you graduate high school uh, and probably like a lot of kids in your class or, you know, 18 year olds in general. I mean, not sure exactly what you want to do. (laughs) Not have no clue what I want to do. How did you end up going to Ithaca? So I went to Ithaca for a a couple reasons. You know, one is... um, you know, I had some family association with Ithaca. Uh, so one of the um, biggest influences in my life uh, was my high school football coach, a gentleman by the name of Steve Dinehart. Uh, he was actually my, mo- my mom's cousin, um, was just, you know, a father figure uh, to me throughout uh, my life for, for many different reasons. Um, and he uh, was a football player at Ithaca. Um, and, you know, just always spoke so highly of the school. And I had an association with Ithaca. And it's interesting because I had an opportunity to, to go to much larger schools uh, for, from a football perspective. Um, but on, what, on, on scholarship? On scholarship. And, you know, one of the things that I, I really decided uh, going into college was that, you know, ultimately, you know, um, I knew that, you know, my football career at some point was going to end. Um, and what was most important for me uh, was to, you know, enjoy playing football, uh, but not really make that my, my, my collegiate experience. You know, I really wanted to make my, my, my collegiate experience both academic as well as athletic. Okay, Abe, you can you can drop some of the modesty here and like, tell me how good a player were you? I was I was I was a decent player. Um, I was a decent football player. I, I, I held the uh, Ithaca College receiving uh, record for eleven years. Um, it was bro- broke. It was broke uh, uh, broken eleven years uh, after I graduated. Okay, so wide receiver. Yes. So you you know you're you're the guy like making big plays, scoring touchdowns. Um, Right. That's a long time ago, Luke. I played. <laughs> <laughs> I played a long time ago. A long time ago. I can't even keep up with my kids anymore. Okay. Okay. So, but you're, you know, as you say, you're six foot four, lanky. You, you're doing well on the football field. How about uh, academically there at Ithaca? What was uh, captivating your your interest? Yeah. So you know, as I said, you know, the, some of the most influential people in my life uh, were both teachers and coaches. Um, you know, outside of my mom and my family, uh, teachers and coaches were um, by far, you know, uh, the most influential folks that I had um, as part of my life growing up. So my first interest uh, academically uh, was teaching and coaching. Um, so um, I, I, I was pursuing, uh, you know, a science undergrad, uh, but also a teaching minor. Uh, that would allow me to actually go teach. Um, and I, I still am extremely passionate about teaching um, on, 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 on various levels, uh, but it's something that, you know, as I said, I'm passionate about. 
So, you know, that was my track. My track was, you know, as I said, a science undergrad and then, you know, also having the uh, minor in education and giving me the ability to teach. Um, it was a great run. Uh, I, I, as most uh, folks that are interested in academia uh, and teaching um, uh, experience, my senior year, I was placed into a uh, into a public school and I was asked to be a student teacher. And about 30 days into it, I, I decided, you know what, I, I don't think I want to be a teacher uh, for the long run. Um, so, you know, it, it was a good experience, but, you know, that that experience definitely changed my mind. But I did not lose my passion for coaching. So it's actually interesting where I am now, you know, as a CEO of a biotech company, uh, that my first job out of college was actually coaching college football. Oh, OK. Where did you do that? So I was a, a graduate assistant coach um, at Springfield College in Western Massachusetts. OK, so were you thinking that you would, you know, make the rounds of college football, you know, assistant coaches, they can, they tend to stick for a, you know, a year or two and then they move around or they, they latch on to a you know, a promising head coach and, and they move their way up. Was that kind of what you were thinking of that might be your path? That was it. That was it. And again, you know, it was, I think, driven by, you know, a couple things. One is a love for the game, you know, the game of football and the experience of playing football taught me so much uh, throughout my life um, and experiences I had um, playing football um, still are, are experiences that I use to this day uh, would be the first reason. And then the second reason is, you know, I think about the influence that, you know, great coaches uh, had on my life. And, you know, my, my, my interest at that point was I want to do that. I want to have the ability uh, to give back. I want to have the ability to go back to my community or, or, or another community and really um, provide that same level of experience uh, for for you know young young men young young women uh, that I had you know growing up. How did you get out of coaching and find your way into business? Such a, such an interesting path. Uh, so step one was realizing that um, you know. The coaching experience that I went through, um, it was great. But what I what I what I didn't get from that coaching experience was really what I ultimately wanted to fulfill, and that is, you know, really having that ability to have such a direct impact in 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 you know a young athlete's life. Um, you know, when you coach college football, you know, part of your job is that clearly, um, but there's a lot more that comes with it. You know, there's just a lot of other things that you're doing um, ultimately that are outside of outside of pure coaching. Um, so, you know, I made a decision, you know, after that experience that, you know, I was going to, uh, you know, pursue, you know, a, a business trajectory. Um, and I, I wish I could give you some you know, big story on how this unfolded and, you know, why it happened. But quite honestly, Luke, I didn't like what I was doing. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I did learn through my life is if you don't enjoy and you're not passionate in what you're doing, then you should probably think about, uh, you know, something you are passionate about. And everyone has the opportunity to make that choice at any point in their life. Uh, 
And at this point, you know, you're still a young guy in your 20s and, you know, not a lot of responsibilities or attachments. So you can still, you know, uh, you, got, you got some flexibility to, to chart a new course. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, um, you know, as I said, my, my undergrad was in science, uh, anatomy and physiology uh, undergrad. Um, and I, I understood science. Um, I started to read articles about, you know, this thing called biotech um, and what was happening um, in Boston with biotech. Um, you know, one of the things that really interested me at that point was um, I had, uh, especially on my mother's side, um, you know, there's a lot of health issues um, as a part of my family. Um, and I became, you know, super uh, invested and interested in when I would hear about health issues, you know, what was really happening? You know, how do, you know, my family members, how does my mom specifically access care? How does she get the care she needs? How does she make decisions? You know, and as a, as a, as a son to a single mother, you know, ultimately, you know, you take on a lot of that responsibility. You want to be there and you want to help, you know, uh, your, your, your parents and, and, and specifically my mom, you want to make them help them make great decisions. What years are we talking about here? When this awareness kind of dawned on you? Yeah. So we're talking about 2001 to 2003. Wow. Okay. So this is, um, you know, the human genome project would have been completed around then. Yep. And, and here you are, you, you were in Western Massachusetts. Yep. You're becoming aware that, gosh, there's this whole thing called biotech, which is like a, a whole new world, really, I would imagine, to a kid from Binghamton. A whole new world whole new world. Um, and, you know, we're, we're you know, I, and I knew that was, you know, two hours east, just drive to Boston, and it was two hours east. Um, so that's the decision that I made, uh, really with nothing, Luke, I mean, with absolutely nothing. Um, I had, you know, uh, it's, again, going to sound like one of those stories. But literally, I had my car, and I had everything I could fit in my car. Um, and I drove to Boston. Uh, first, you know, I got into grad school. Uh, so I got into uh, the Suffolk uh, MBA program as a full-time student. Um, I was a graduate assistant um, at Suffolk. So I was working um, in the dean's office at Suffolk while also pursuing my MBA. I uh, did, you know, my first year full-time and then, you know, was still really passionate about the biotech and the healthcare industry overall and really started to evaluate um, a, a several different intern opportunities and, and management development programs, you know, in the Boston area in both healthcare as well as pharmaceutical and biotech. Um, and, you know, I would have to say that that was, you know, a real eye opening experience for me because, you know, you know, I, I'll be frank, you know, I do not have the pedigree um, of many other, uh, you know, uh, students um, and, and entry level uh, folks in, in the biotech or the healthcare industry. So, you know, when I'm going into, you know, these interview processes uh, for uh, MBA development programs, you know, I don't have an Ivy League undergrad degree. Um, you know, I don't have an Ivy League MBA track that I'm on. Um, and the ability to distinguish, differentiate myself in that process was one that I had to work extremely hard um, at. 
Was that a little in- intimidating or shake the confidence a little bit? You know, I wouldn't say that it was intimidating, uh, Luke. What what it was is uh, another learning experience for me. And, and it's something that, you know, I've talked about a few times and I've said learning experience a few times as, as we've talked today is that, you know, I don't know where it comes from or, 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 you know, exactly where, 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 where this came in my life, but, you know, I'm rarely intimidated by situations. Um, and I really look at tough situations as learning opportunities. Well, maybe some of that comes from the football background, um, you know, um, encountering adversity, you know, you're going to lose games and you got to bounce back and, uh, you know, you apply yourself. There's a lot of good lessons there. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Okay. So, but this, this sounds, this is really important. This is your foot in the door. You you get an internship. Uh, You're there in Boston pursuing an MBA. And how did you get your foot in the door? I guess it was at Genzyme at the time. Yeah. Yeah. At Genzyme at the time. Um, So, you know, persistence, persistence, persistence um, was the way that I got my foot in the door. Um, you know, talking to, you know, as many people as I possibly could. And once I really identified Genzyme um, and really learned about Genzyme at that point, and this is still relative early days at Genzyme, you know, the early 2000s, um, and really to learn, you know, about the mission and the vision that Henry had uh, really attracted me to Genzyme. And once I really set my sights on, set my sights on Genzyme, you know, I, I basically became ingrained into, in me that, you know, everything else was second choice um, and Genzyme was first choice. So as I said, I was just uh, painfully persistent. I'm sure you can talk to some of the folks uh, that, you know, that talked to me in that uh, MBA development process and intern process that, there probably was a more persistent person um, on trying to land a spot. Uh, but I was extremely fortunate uh, to land that spot and have the experience that I did. Um, and, you know, I, I still go back and say, you know, there's decisions and opportunities that, that folks have in their lives. And, you know, your ability to truly, you know, uh, accept that, that those moments and really take in those moments and how they shape you for the rest of your life and sometimes the rest of your career um, are pretty remarkable. And that's what the Genzyme experience was for me, without a doubt. Interesting. So what was your first job there? So my first job there was I was uh, my first my intern role. So I was an MBA intern um, at that point for the biosurgery business. And, um, you know, many folks that are familiar with the Genzyme story understand Genzyme and, and they should understand Genzyme for really the core focus in orphan and rare disease. Uh, but as any, everyone knows, Henry was also a true entrepreneurial spirit and an innovator. Um, and there were several businesses that were being established at Genzyme that you could almost consider kind of startups. You know, they're almost, you know, these little venture-backed kind of startup organizations within Genzyme and biosurgery being one of them. Uh, so I was part of, you know, both the commercial as well as the business development arm um, as an intern uh, for, uh, for the biosurgery business. Um, and then that experience went very well. 
um, that summer. And uh, when I was on the back end of my internship role, um, they said, hey, you know, you've done a great job. Um, you know, we've got this interesting little product uh, called Cardicel, which is an autologous cell therapy um cell therapy uh, uh, technology for, 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 for the repair of, uh, for a repair of articular cartilage. They said, you know, we've got a role out in Chicago um, that is kind of a pseudo uh, commercial slash medical affairs role, and we'd like you to take it. So there, once again, um, jumped in my car uh, and moved to Chicago. And this would have been a, a full-time job. That's a full-time job. So I, I put my, my, my MBA on hold. Uh, so I completed a first year full-time. I put my MBA on hold. And I said, you know what? I really want to get, gain this experience. I want to I really learn you know, this business ultimately. Um, and it was just another great experience. So I was out in Chicago for roughly a year and a half, almost two years um, and then came back, um, came back and, and, and was then, you know, on kind of the Genzyme track where I stayed for almost a decade. And did you finish up the MBA like nights and weekends? I did. I did. Once I came back to Boston, I finished up uh, my MBA uh, nights and weekends. Um, and uh, it was a great experience. If you like listening to the Long Run Podcast, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. This is where you'll gain a deep contextual understanding of biotech from my writing and from an outstanding cast of contributing writers such as Otello Stampaccia, Ruth Etzioni, Stacey Lawrence, Alex Harding, David Shaywitz, and many more. It's a bargain at $149 a year for an individual to subscribe. 10% discounts are available for groups with five or more readers. This is the best way to support the kind of quality, independent biotech journalism that I've been doing for about 20 years. I appreciate your support. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to show your support today. By this time, you're, you're doing well at Genzyme, and you're getting some of that, that imprinting. Actually, that's a word that Henry... I, I used to speak with him about um, because he had that experience, as I'm sure you know, like when he, he was a young guy at Baxter and got uh, a lot of uh, experience early on. Uh, and, and, and I think he instilled some of that at Genzyme that, you know, if you, if you had a, a bright and energetic young person, um, sometimes they, they just get thrown into the deep end of the pool, more and more responsibility. It wasn't that hierarchical, maybe a little more uh, startup like, as, as you said. Exactly. And it was one of these experiences at Genzyme. I would uh, fully agree with everything you just said, Luke. Um, and, you know, for some people, I think Genzyme was one of these environments that weeded people out pretty quickly uh, because, yes, you were thrown into the deep end of the pool um, and, and you weren't always thrown into the deep end of the pool without any support. Um, there was support around you. But it really took 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 certain individuals to have the initiative uh, to to be willing to learn, uh, being willing to basically learn on the fly a bit, 
but also have the wherewithal to be able to seek out information, seek out resources, you know, to help you be successful. Um, and, you know, for, for some people, that's not very comfortable. You know, that, that can be a pretty exposing situation uh, for some people. But for others, you know, you can really thrive in that environment. Um, and I found that I, I, I did thrive in that environment um, and had some great mentors along the way. Um, don't ever pretend that I do things on my own. Um, you know, mentors are so important. Um, in all aspects of life, you know, specifically uh, professional life. But that, that Genzyme experience do, did afford many of us, you know, the ability to learn uh, all aspects of the biotech business, starting with, you know, what ultimately, what are we really trying to do for patients? So how did this culminate for you? Uh, it was with the, um, the renal franchise, wasn't it? Yes, that was my last role. Uh, my last role was was running uh, global marketing uh, for the Reno business. Um, at that point, um, you know, the Reno business was uh, one that was really kind of near and dear to my heart uh, because um, I do have a family history um, of of kidney disease uh, in my family. Uh, so the Reno business was one that you know, I had a particular passion passion about the renal business based on that. Uh, But yes, you know, my last role there was uh, running the the global aspects of the renal business. And it was the first opportunity that I had to really uh, uh, lead a launch of a a product. Uh, So at that point, we were were, uh, launching a a product by the name of uh, Renagel, um, I'm sorry, Renvella at that point, we had already launched Renagel. We were la- launching Renvella um, and I was responsible for the global launch of that product, which was just a phenomenal experience, both in terms of launching a product, but also going through a go- global launch and really understanding, you know, uh, all of the intricacies of, of launching, you know, a brand and launching a product, you know, in, 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 in several geographies. Yeah, that's a real strategic test and also requires that you work with uh, other departments. Yeah, other departments, you know, um, ultimately when 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 you're you're launching and you're a fully integrated commercial organization, it's not only other departments. Ultimately, it's working with other cultures, you know, so when you are, you know, launching and thinking about integrating into a U.S. business, you know, versus uh, you know, you pick it, you know, at that point, you know, uh, the third largest market in the world uh, for the Reno franchise at that point uh, was Brazil. Um, so, you know, culturally, you know, as you think about integrating, you know, your plans into a Brazilian uh, country office versus the U.S. business, it's different. Um, and it taught me a lot. And believe me, there's many, many times I tripped and fell and didn't do the right things. Uh, but, you know, again, going back to some of the things that I said, I, I, I've, I've accepted and I've learned that, you know, every experience, you know, as you persevere through something, you should learn from it. Um, but what a great learning experience it was for me just to work across the world and, and understand different cultures, understand different dynamics, economic dynamics um, that, that, that are really a part of what we do in the biotech industry across the world. Okay, so how did you decide it was time to move on? So at that point, you know, Genzyme was going uh, through, you know, an active process. Um, you know, there were, 
you know, activists, investors that were um, very involved in Genzyme. And, you know, it was an active process that Genzyme ultimately, you know, was going to be sold. And, you know, at that point it was it was acquired by Sanofi. Um, and it just felt like the right the right time for me to to look at new opportunities. And, you know, what I did learn uh, at the Genzyme experience, you know, was a fully integrated company. And, you know, my desire was kind of to step back, you know, earlier into the into the development process of a biotech organization. And if you really look at the course of my career, that's what I've done. You know, I continue to step back earlier, earlier and earlier um, as I've progressed through my career. Um, and at that point, you know, um, I uh, was able to join uh, Ironwood Pharmaceuticals. Uh, so Ironwood at that point uh, was a public company, um, however, not a commercial stage company, still a clinical stage company. Um, and uh, at that point, we were um, in in the process um, of initiating our phase three trials uh, for linaclotide. Uh, which is, you know, now Linzess, a, a large branded uh, gastrointestinal product, um, and joined as the second member um, of that commercial organization, uh, which was a much broader role for me at that point, uh, because it was really building a commercial infrastructure, um, as well as really shepherding, you know, a program through uh, final clinical trials, um, and then getting an entire commercial organization really off of the ground. Wow. So that's a, a great experience as because before a, a lot of the infrastructure was was in place or, or things may have been templated, I guess, at, at Genzyme. Yes, definitely at Genzyme, you know, more templated, you know, and it, 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 my Genzyme experience was really about learning kind of the fundamentals, you know, how you make you know, great strategic decisions, you know, strategic orientation uh, to, um, you know, uh, uh, informing kind of financial decisions, et cetera. Um, and, you know, that that real kind of core belief around thinking about what is the best thing to do for patients was at Genzyme, but it was templated. You know, there was really not a template, you know, at Ironwood and, uh, you know, we had to build it. It's really interesting hearing you describe the Genzyme experience. It, it almost sounds like you got your PhD in the business of biotech there. Yeah. 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 And, you know, there's, as you know, Luke, there's there's many of us that from all different, you know, walks of, you know, different tracks of Genzyme that that can speak to that experience and have been able to take that experience um, and I think make great impacts on the industry um, across many different companies, um, you know, since that Genzyme experience. Okay, so you, you go to Ironwood. Uh, that's an interesting uh, transition time, moving from late stage clinic to commercial. You're putting, you're painting on a, a you know a fresh canvas. Uh, you're there for a couple years. You move, I think, to Carex for a while, and then SC. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about SC and what was important about that as part of your journey. Yeah, so SC was a, a really uh, important step for me in my career. Um, two reasons. Uh, one is, as I said, you know, um, I've continued to go earlier and earlier in both company build um, as well as overall, you know, development stages of company. You know, SC uh, really was my first opportunity to, to really be a part of an early stage venture back company. Um, and then the second was, you know, taking on a role that ultimately 
you know, significantly stretched, stretched me and, and really forced me to really round out, um, you know, my experience um, and my career overall. Now, was that chief operating officer from the start? Exactly. So that was chief operating officer from the start. You know, I was brought into SC Pharma um, by uh, one of uh, the venture uh, groups here based in Boston. Um, and it was just a great experience. How many employees did the company have at that time? Um, I think at that time we were roughly at 17 employees. You would have had a seat at the table. I mean, right there in the executive committee uh, at SC, small venture back company. And what were the, I guess, the, the, what was the main task in front of you, your mandate? Yep. Two main tasks. You know, one uh, was you know, uh, the, the, the need to raise a, a substantial amount of capital to continue to progress, you know, our platform at SC. Um, and in order for us to raise that capital, one of the uh, areas that I picked up in my evaluation of the opportunity was some, you know, at that point, gaps within uh, the overall operations of the company. Uh, that would really allow us to be able to bring in that capital because ultimately, you know, great investors do great diligence. And without, you know, making some of these operational challenges, you know, we were not going to be well positioned uh, to bring in that capital. Um, So those were really kind of two new experiences for me. Um, You know, I had not participated uh, in private fundraising, you know, throughout my career. Um, and being in front of, you know, great venture investors um, to really, you know, pull down, you know, a substantial financing round uh, for a company. Uh, the second aspect is, you know, I really push myself uh, professionally to really understand some areas that peripherally I knew from my previous experiences, uh, but I never had really the hands on accountability and responsibility uh, for forming these organizations. So that was uh, pharmaceutical development and CMC, um, as well as at that point, we had a device uh, that was part of this drug device uh, platform at SD Pharmaceuticals that I was responsible for the engineering group as well. And on top of that was, you know, all of the commercial aspects of the business. Um, so it was a really great experience for me you know, one to kind of understand some of those more development oriented um, aspects of of our industry. And then two, um, really have that firsthand experience in in raising capital. So you had both the internal facing functions um, that people think of traditionally with a COO role, but also this external facing part, dealing with the investors. Uh, You got to be cool and calm and poised and able to answer all of these questions that they've got. And they're going to have good questions and you got to be on your toes, right? All that stuff. Exactly. But you found that that suited you. Uh, you did well. Company raised, I think, 140 million. Is that right? Yeah, we raised, uh, we raised about 150 million um, when I was there. Um, you know, 102 of that was uh, via an IPO, taking the company public and 47 of which came um, in the Series B. Okay, so you you uh, you have a good run at SC. Then, how does the Tiberio opportunity present itself? Yeah. So at SC, um, I did have a great run 
um, and a great experience. And, um, you know, SC, uh, we hit a pretty significant regulatory bump in the road um, with our drug device combination. Um, and at that point, um, what we knew, and I, I had, you know, raised the capital for the company. Uh, we had really built the organization to a place where uh, we could uh, progress the company to the next stage. And, you know, I was fortunate enough at that point, you know, and I think it was primarily through, you know, my network and folks that knew me um, in the greater Boston, Cambridge biotech uh, community, as well as investors that I interacted with. Um, I was fortunate enough to have uh, a lot of CEO opportunities starting to come my way. Um, so, um, you know, I had the conversation with the SC Pharma board and, you know, we, we decided that, you know, if, if, if there was a CEO opportunity that, you know, was the right fit for me, um, that, you know, it's something I should really look at. Um, and what was interesting about that is the CEO opportunity at Tiberio actually came from um, a, a SC Pharma board member and investor. Uh, so as I was evaluating several opportunities, um, you know, one of uh, the investors and a board member uh, from SC Pharma said, you know, before you do anything, I really need you to go meet with some folks. Um, and at that point, it was the team at Sidon, um, as well as the team at NEA. And I, I really want you to spend some time talking to them about this concept that we have uh, for starting a rare endocrine company. You know, at that point, the company didn't even have a name. Uh, you know, the Series A wasn't done. Uh, the license agreement uh, between uh, Tiberio um, without a name and, and Ipsen Pharma, where we brought in uh, two compounds, um, did, with that license agreement wasn't completed. Uh, but I really fell in love, you know, with, with the story of Tiberio. Um, and, you know, ultimately, uh, I, I fell in love with kind of the, the, the concept of the compounds and what we could do for patients. And I'll talk a little bit more about why I see as such a huge unmet need in what we're doing. But the second piece is, you know, really reflecting on, you know, what do I believe I'm, uh, where, where is the most value I can bring to an organization? And what aligned very well as I talked to, you know, the team at NEA um, and Longitude Capital, another one of our, our, our lead investors, um, is, you know, a clear path and a vision to build, you know, a broader organization in the rare endocrine space. And ultimately, you know, that's what I'm great at is, you know, building and creating a vision and then really, you know, building an organization and a team that can really execute on that vision. And there was just such a clear alignment there between me and the investors where, you know, ultimately we saw it as a good fit. Now, by this time, were you 40 or not quite? I'm 42 now. So I j had just turned 40 at the at when okay. I was evaluating this opportunity. Yep. And, and okay, now you're now you're getting your shot as a CEO. Yes, this really is a, uh, a a whiteboard kind of opportunity. You got a, you're looking at a couple of compounds from Ipsen, uh, and for one reason or another, they they weren't interested in further developing them. Yeah, you know, I think it's a very similar story that you know now we're seeing so often in our industry um, is that. You know, uh, some of the greatest opportunities can sit with technology that may be uh, just deprioritized within larger organizations. And it just takes, the, you know, the right team and the right minds to be able to find the opportunities to, 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 
to carve a path forward uh, for these technologies. Um, so it was one of those opportunities where um, it, it, it had just been deprioritized within Ipsen. Okay, and so Cydan is this rare disease uh, accelerator incubator in Kendall Square. Uh, they were aware of it and, and seeking to in license it, but needed um, you know a CEO and a team to to you know breathe life into this. Thing. Exactly. And NEA is one of the investors there. Is that right? Correct. NEA is our, oh, okay. our lead investor. What was it about these? compounds that that really uh stood out for you uh, as opposed to you know the other things you you could have gone and, and worked on so um the first was um ultimately the science driving our, our lead compound tbr 760 um so you know the, the the scientific platform driving uh you know both compounds that we brought in uh, uh, from from Ipsen um, are you know they're they, they the shorthand um, they've been called dopastatins, uh, so it's both dopamine as well as somatostatin agonism um, targeting uh, endocrine disease specifically uh, to, uh, pituitary diseases, um, and these chimeric compounds really had a long history, um, and both dopamine as well as somatostatin have really well-defined mechanisms within pituitary disease. So for me, uh, the first thing that I evaluate when I think about opportunity is ultimately, can I get passionate and can I believe in the science that, you know, when we do all of the rigorous work that we're going to do, that we can get something to patients. So the first thing that interested me was, you know, one that really checked the box, you know, a clear scientific rationale for the mechanism, both across dopamine as well as somatostatin. And then given the work that was done at Ipsen, um, you know, uh, uh, there was a clear uh, uh, proof of mechanism as well as clinical proof of concept uh, that supported both comp compounds. What, can you talk a little bit about the first molecule? Is it some kind of combination of dopamine and somatostatin, like a couple of well-known it is so 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 it is um, a true chimeric compound. Um, so basically, bringing together a small molecule and a peptide together in one chimeric. Um, in its final form, it is synthesized as a peptide. So this is not you know um, you know taking you know two separate uh, separate moieties and then just putting them in a pill together. These are synthesized together as a chimeric uh, that are basically allow for uh, basically binding to both dopamine 2 as well as somatostatin type 2 in one chimeric compound, which downstream really allows for what we see as greater efficacy in treating specific, specific pituitary diseases. We're focused in non-functioning pituitary adenoma, which is basically a, a macroadenoma or non-metastatic tumor of the pituitary gland. Uh, but that's that's what they are. They're they're it's a true chimeric compound. And is there really anything available for these patients? Nothing available for these patients. And you know, again, you know, going back to my early experience at Genzyme, um, you know, for orphan diseases where there are no um, approved therapies um, or 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 available therapies for these patients. You know, oftentimes, you know, the drug development process is one that, you know, can can really scare some people off a bit because, you know, one is, 
you know, how do you develop a development pathway, regulatory endpoints, et cetera, uh, for a disease that's never had a precedent? Um, you know, that takes a lot of work to do that. And it takes alignment with uh, regulatory authorities and ultimately, you know, building an organization of people that really understand how to do this. Um, so, you know, uh, these patients with non-functioning pituitary adenoma, uh, these are mass, uh, mass tumors um, of the pituitary gland. Uh, where your pituitary sits, it sits at the base of your brain. Um, and these tumors grow in an area that have several critical structures. Uh, one is your optic chiasm and your optic nerves. Uh, two is the carotid, ar carotid artery and three are just uh, several other cranial nerves. So as these patients um, have and uh, are diagnosed with, with uh, uh, non-functioning pituitary adenomas, uh, the symptoms that, that actually present um, are based on the mass effect against those critical structures. So these patients yeah. often present with vision loss. Uh, some of these patients can have strokes, uh, cranial nerve palsies. And then by the time these patients are diagnosed, this is a, a macroadenoma, you know, a, a, a large non-metastatic tumor in a very confined space at the base of their brain. So currently, the only available treatment for them is an aggressive neurosurgery, which is called transphenoidal surgery, and then also radiation. The challenge with both of those treatments, one surgery, uh, given the location and the size of the tumor, rarely are these patients ever to have ever have their tumor completely removed. Uh, roughly 50% of them, half of them have a tumor after surgery. So basically, the surgeon is almost just um, removing the mass effect, but they can't remove the entire tumor. Uh, the problem with that is that the tumors recur over the patient's life, and then they have to have another surgery, or they have to have another, or they have to have radiation. Radiation is uh, very destructive to the pituitary gland. Um, it basically uh, destroys the pituitary gland, uh, making many of these patients, if they have uh, if they have radiation, hypopit. Uh, meaning they they lose their pituitary function for the rest of their lives, which has a significant impact on their quality of life. Um, and then if patients undergo another neurosurgery, uh, both the morbidity as well as the mortality increases with ongoing procedures, both surgery as well as radiation. Okay, so uh, presuming patients would have gone through uh, this surgery uh, before they come to become candidates for a clinical trial that, that you're going to run? Yes. So our initial trial is looking at patients that are post-transphenoidal surgery and have a clinically relevant tumor remnant um, after surgery. Clinically relevant being defined as a tumor remnant that is greater than 10 millimeters in size. Okay. Now, what's the mechanistic hypothesis? You said that your, your drug is, I mean, it's a peptide. And it, um, it's an agonist. So is it supposed to like stimulate some pituitary functions so that, I don't know, it, it brings some kind of rebalance? Yes, it's very interesting when you think about agonist versus antagonist, because you would say, okay, so it's an agonist. It must be doing something that leads, that leads to pituitary function that changes, 
you know, or has an impact on these tumors. What's very interesting about dopamine agonism as well as somatostatin agonism is um, actually agonism um, in non-functioning pituitary adenomas as well as other pituitary adenomas actually downstream uh, shows uh, anti-proliferative effects which lead to cell cycle arrest and ultimately uh, cell death which will cause both tumor shrinkage as well as tumor stabilization. Um, and this is very well defined um, in the scientific literature. That's really interesting, but it's different than how we normally think about um, fighting cancer. It's usually, you know, trying to inhibit, to antagonize something. Exactly. And, and um, you know, uh, the role of dopamine as well as somatostatin is, is well defined in pituitary disease. Um, you know, both uh, somatostatin agonists uh, lead to uh, the reduction in, in growth hormone as well as have an antiproliferative effect um, in acromegaly. Um, you know, dopamine agonists um, are, are f- uh, a standard of care for another uh, pituitary adenoma by the name of prolactinoma, which are much more dopamine uh, forward uh, pituitary tumors, but also um, uh, result in uh, increased prolactin levels. So dopamine agonists are both suppressing the prolactin secretion, but also uh, leading to an antiproliferative effect in shrinking the tumors. For non-functioning pituitary adenomas, what we're not concerned about um, or what clinicians are not concerned about is any uh, hormone excess. Uh, What they're really concerned about here with non-functioning pituitary adenomas is, I said, reducing the mass effect. So what we know about both dopamine as well as somatostatin in in several in vitro studies as well as a a pretty well-defined animal model that actually was just published uh, by, by, by our head of research is that um, downstream, uh, what dopamine agonists and somatostatin agonism specifically are compound in its chimeric form, as I said, are showing anti-proliferative properties that lead to cell cycle arrest, uh, cell death, which ultimately leads to tumor stabilization and shrinkage. So maybe some of that tumor can hang around, uh, but it's not spreading and it's not, you know, getting bulkier and impinging on these other you know, mission critical life processes. Exactly. And you, the challenge with this disease and why there's such an unmet need for these patients, these patients are diagnosed in the fifth, fourth or fifth decade of life. Um, you know, these are relatively young patients. Um, and there are no, uh, diag- uh, there are no biomarkers uh, to define, um, you know, who, who's going to have aggressive regrowth of their tumor. Um, and the challenge for these patients is we've really started to get more and more um, familiar with the patient community is these patients are under care for the rest of their lives. Every year, um, sometimes it extends to every other year, these patients go have an MRI, a brain scan to understand if their tumor has grown because there are no biomarkers to define when the tumor is going to grow. And these patients live, and we hear, we hear these words, fear, anxiety, um, because what they know is if my tumor regrows, I either need to go through uh, that very aggressive neurosurgery uh, that can lead to substantial morbidity, or 
um, I might have to undergo radiation. Um, and I know based on that re- radiation, I'm going to lose pituitary function or I have a high ra- risk of lo- losing pituitary function. Um, and um, I'm going to be on hormone replacement therapy uh, for the rest of my life, uh, which is, is really um, a, a difficult life to live for patients. Yeah, it's it's hard to uh, to plan optimistically for the future with that kind of thing hanging over your head. Mm-hmm. Um, well, okay, so where does this program stand in uh, clinical development? So where we are, Luke, right now is we are set to enter a phase two trial with TBR seven sixty. Um, you know, we we did uh, take uh, uh, put the trial on pause uh, due to the COVID situation, as you know, many other uh, folks um, in in our industry had to do. Which, you know, for me was, and I think for all of us, you know, was a really difficult day for patients and clinicians that we're working with. You know, ultimately, you know, we're building um, up all of this uh, uh, energy uh, around a program that we think can really help patients, but we did put the program on hold. We anticipate that we're going to be able to re, 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 uh, re-engage our trial in September. Uh, so um, yes, we'll be starting a phase two trial in September. All right. Well, everybody can wear their masks when they come in and <laughs> figure out what, what you got to do. Now, you've been doing this for couple years now at Tiberio. How many people do you have on your team? So we're pretty lean. Um, I, I was uh, at that point uh, employee number two. Uh, my vice president of research, our vice president of research, um, actually came to the organization be, because uh, she was uh, a member of the Ibsen team. Uh, and now we are up to 10 people. Okay, so a lot of the work being done through CROs. Yes, yep. Uh, a lot of our work is being outsourced via CRO, um, as well as our manufacturing uh, through you know a pretty well established uh, CMC network as well. Now, I've noticed as well, Abe, that you. Um, I think it, it has been during this run here at Tiberio. You've been able to expand your yourself a little bit into the community a little more, joining some nonprofit boards. Um, what are you, can you talk a little bit about just a couple of those and, and what you're hoping to accomplish there? Sure. Um, you know, so the, the, the first, um, uh, entry into the nonprofit world is, you know, I, I was, uh, very fortunate, um, and, you know, he's really been a mentor for me, you know, over the course of my career to, uh, work with Rob Perez, um, uh, as part of Life Science Cares. Um, and as you know, Luke, you know, Life Science Cares um, is a consortium of life science executives um, and, uh, and also life science companies that support uh, Life Science Cares that then, you know, uh, distributes grant money uh, into uh, the community uh, for uh, nonprofits uh, that really support the mission of Life Science Cares. So that was really kind of my first path in. Um, and I, and as I was sitting on various grant committees um, of Life Science Cares, you know, you're reading kind of the mission of these organizations and um, also really understanding specifically how they're going to be allocating this grant money. Um, and I, I really became so interested in, in a few different uh, areas that were invested in Life Science Cares, you know, one uh, being food, food security. Um, and then the second uh, really being, um, you know, overall kind of health, wellness, 
um, and safety, you know, in, in our communities. Uh, so from that, um, I've been fortunate enough to, to join a couple boards. Uh, one is uh, an organization in Cambridge uh, by the name of Food for Free. Uh, food for Free is a food rescue organization um, that does very innovative things, uh, both in terms of food distribution, uh, dealing with food insecurity, and really establishing you know, uh, themselves within schools, both Cambridge Public Schools as well as Somerville Public Schools, um, in, in its ability to really uh, distribute food and allow uh, kids to be able to, you know, bring healthy meals home. And the second is, is Camp Harborview. Um, and Camp Harborview is, is a camp uh, that is based um, on one of the Boston Harbor Islands uh, that serves, um, you know, the underserved communities of Boston, uh, really save, providing, you know, these kids, um, you know, a safe, uh, a safe, um, and structured um, and really full, uh, a fulfilled um, experience over the summer uh, for so many kids coming from, you know, uh, low socioeconomic neighborhoods um, in the Boston area. So why have these things, I mean, you've been working on these for a while, but um, why did they speak to you and really motivate you to get involved? You know, um, I think I'll, I'll speak to each one differently. Let me talk about life science cares. You know, why, 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 do, why was I so um, invested in, am I so invested in life science cares? Ultimately, you know, what we do in the life science community um, and what we are aspiring to do for patients um, is first and foremost but I think what I picked up on from, from Rob is that, you know, the great things that we have done from patients have off, often brought great resources to our industry. And individually, um, you know, we were all looking to do great things for our communities, but collectively um, we could do something greater. And kind of that collective impact um, of Life Science Cares is really what, what drew me to that organization. And then for Camp Harborview, as well as Food for Free, you know, uh, quite frankly, Luke, you know, these are things that I look at myself today and where I am today. And there are organizations such as Camp Harborview. There are um, resources such as Food for Free that, you know, I I relied on when I was a kid. You know, there were summer programs and there were things that um, were a part of my community. Uh, there was, uh, you know, uh, the access to food that, you know, ultimately my family required when I was a kid. And I knew how, how influential uh, that was in where I am today. And, you know, the, my, my passion for both of these organizations is that, um, you know, ultimately there is a young kid that is Abe Cisse out there, you know, and, you know, an ability to touch one of those kids and impact one of those kids in, in that way, you know, um, can, can do a lot for, for young kids. And it really comes down to, you know, a personal um, experience for me. It's really interesting because, um, you know, not only are so many kids dealing with the food insecurity, as you say, but um, 
you know, the the sense of belonging and uh, and and caring adults being around them that you might get at a summer camp. Uh, that's really important. But, you know, I think getting biotech people involved in these kind of causes that are not absolutely directly uh, related to, you know, whatever treatment area that you're working on. Uh, it also helps to kind of spread the word about biotech among kids uh, who, you know, like, like when you were a kid, you, you didn't like weren't aware of everything that was the amazing stuff that was going on in Boston and all the career possibilities that lay in front of you. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there are lots of kids uh, all around the country today who, um, gosh, if they knew what was going on in biotech, I mean, it would their, their eyes would light up and, and they would begin to imagine futures like you and I have been fortunate enough to get exposed to. I completely agree. And um, so much of, you know, what we experience in our lives, especially young people, um, is is defined by, um, you know, what they're exposed to uh, for good and for bad. Um, and, you know, I, I am a real believer that, um, you know, exposing uh, young people, you know, to the opportunities uh, that exist in in their communities, you know, and I'm defining the greater Boston community at this point, you know, there's no reason that um, a kid that lives in Dorchester or Roxbury should not have the same exposure as the kid that lives in uh, Cambridge or lives in Newton, as an example. I mean, you know, fundamentally, we're all one large community. And if we can bring that exposure of our industry and what we're doing um, and what the opportunities are to these kids, then ultimately we, we are going to make our community stronger. You know, we're going to make our community stronger. We're going to see these kids come out of school, um, you know, maybe go on to secondary school, maybe go on to college, but maybe some of those kids don't go on to college and they are you know, doing a lab technician job within a biotech organization or whatever it may be. Maybe someone is aspiring to, you know, get a basic science degree and, and actually, you know, do some basic research. Maybe somebody wants to be, you know, a CEO someday. But the only way that you can learn if you want to do those things is you have to have the exposure and you have to be aware of those things. Um, and, you know, I, I look at my life experience and say, um, you know, my life experience there's things that part of my experience that forced me to gain that exposure. Um, and I would really love to see other kids not have to be forced to gain that exposure, have that exposure come to them. Well, there's that piece of it uh, with the kids getting exposed and seeing the possibilities that are in front of them and imagining something for themselves. But there's also the industry side of it, which is being open and welcoming to uh, people who didn't necessarily go to an Ivy League school and giving them opportunities that that, you know, that foot in the door with the internship where, you know, you, you got your chance to show what you can do. And uh, uh, and and now you're running a company. Couldn't agree more. And I, I think, you know, our our industry, you know, is um, very progressive in their thinking. I mean, I, I think you, you see from, you know, uh, investors to uh, boards uh, to management teams are, are, are starting to really open their minds to the possibilities and, and the potential uh, to think a little bit more broadly about, you know, 
ultimately, you know, who, who do we want to, who do we, who, who should be representing, you know, a given company. And I think, you know, um, it's, it's nice to see that level of progressive thinking in our industry. There's a lot more room, uh, a lot of work to do. Um, but, uh, I, uh, I know that you're, uh, you're fighting that good fight there, Abe. Best of luck to you at Tiburio. Thank you for joining me today on The Long Run. Hey, Luke, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.